This is Professor David Block, and it's my singular joy and honor to welcome you here to cliffcentral.com, to the studios here in Ravonia, and my broadcast is entitled, or my unradio stream is entitled, Looking Up with David Block. And today we're going to have a huge amount of fun. I want listeners from questions. I want questions from listeners, not listeners from questions. Questions from listeners. And so it's going to be sort of a potpourri. I've got a general theme which I want to explore today. But to reach us in studio, you dial zero eight six one triple five one eight nine. That's zero eight six one triple five one eight nine. And I'd really like you to feel free today. You know, so many people as I travel the globe have got so many questions to ask me and whatever has the time to really devote to a single, uh, to devote a show to a single set of Q&A. So I'd be more than happy to do that, although I've got a very central theme which I'll be exploring while I wait your calls at 0861-555-189 or you can reach me via Twitter, of course, at cliffcentral.com on Instagram, Cliff Central, on Facebook, Cliff Central, and the WeChat ID too uh, on Cliff Central. So what I'd like to do today is to kick off by uh, taking a walk down memory lane. And many questions, the thread in the story is as follows. How did I actually start? What, what ignited my interests? In astronomy, why did I choose astronomy as opposed, for example, to becoming an actuary or to becoming a mathematician or something along the mathematical, other mathematical lines? Why did I specifically choose astronomy and how do you know that your career choice is the correct one? Because uh, our twin boys, Nathaniel and Tevia, now age 16, named by Nelson Mandela, Conquesi and Ketile, uh, they are job shadowing or were job shadowing this past week. One of the twins wants to become a trauma surgeon, so he did a lot of job shadowing at Barra. And uh, the other one, probably a CA, so did a lot of job shadowing at one of our large banks nearby here. And so the question I've been asked is, Dad, how do I really know that I know that I know that the career choice that I'm going to make is the right one? You know, one thinks of someone, for example, like Gareth, Gareth Cliff, and he's just made some awesome decisions. Uh, and the question again is, you know, the question posed to me is, how does one know that one knows that one knows that one's career path is the one that um, is the one to follow? Now, here is my response. I was privileged to grow up in a very small town, actually, not even a city, but a town called Krugersdorp, uh, now called Mohali City. A very small town, Duncan, my audio engineer to the right, very small town indeed. And um, so, I, of course, being a smallish town, not being a big city like Johannesburg, there weren't that many lights. Light pollution was not high, which meant, of course, that David Block could go outside of an evening and gaze up at the starry vaults of the Via Lactea. So I gazed up and I started wondering, what are these little speckles of light that I see blazing forth in the starry vaults? Uh, in our Milky Way galaxy. So, you know, there was the starting, the first steps, the crawling steps was that I, you know, surveyed different areas, surveyed different areas in um, academia. But before that, I remember being at high school. And those were the days when milk was still delivered in little milk cans, not milk bottles, but milk cans and milk bottles. But they were delivered to one's home. 
And the year was 1969, and I was at high school, and I'll never forget one day getting up at 4 a.m. to see a comet. Now, what was very interesting about comets is that everyone listening to um, this uh, this program today, of course, would uh, be familiar with uh, Halley's Comet, for example. And Halley's Comet is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You look up at the night sky, see this blazing comet, this dirty snowball of ice mixed with dust, and you wonder what is Halley's Comet and so forth. But... These were the days long before Cliff Central. And so in 1969, I remember very vividly being told on the radio that uh, one could get up at 4 a.m. and see uh, an extraordinary sight, I was told, on air. And uh, this extraordinary sight was apparently a comet called Comet Bennett. And in fact, I'm holding a book in my hands signed by the discoverer of uh, Comet Bennett, um, Jack Bennett. So here I was at school, round grade 10, and I looked up at this comet, and something happened within my being. I suddenly, I can't say I knew that I knew that I knew that I wanted to become an astronomer, but I certainly knew that I knew that I knew that I wanted to take photographs of this comet. My interest in photography dates back many, many, many years, and in fact goes predates me to my father, who uh, actually had a little studio uh, in the Krugersdorp Benoni area, and uh, he used to do a lot of uh, studio work. He was a great friend of one of the pioneers in fashion photography, the late Sam Haskins who settled in the central London area before moving to Australia. And so I have had an interest in photography for as long as I can recall. I remember often working in our bathroom at home and uh, developing. Those were the days, not digital cameras, those were the days, Duncan, when you had to actually take your photographic film and, uh, you know, put it in a tank, as we called it, a photographic tank. And, you know, it had to be light proof, of course. Otherwise, it would destroy the emulsion, the image on the emulsion. And uh, it is just awesome, actually, to uh, develop these images. And then in the bathroom, uh, you know, once they were fully developed, take them out and look at them and so forth. So I remember very vividly looking at Comet Bennett. And I saw something quite incredible. I saw, uh, gazing up at the eastern part of our sky, I noted uh, the comet with its large head and then very tenuous uh, tails. And so I uh, was determined not only to look at this comet, but to photograph it as well. And I suppose it's just like a game of golf. If you really trained, if you, if you're, you know, if you are set out to be a professional golfer, you will find golfing fun. You will find golfing amazing. You will find golfing filled with enthusiasm and passion. And I've delineated those words today very, very, very carefully. Because I believe that nobody should have a job. You'll say to me, but Professor Block, why? Because my job is my passion. And my passion is my job. Because we must remember that we may be in our jobs, quote unquote, for 40 years. Truly. One might start off at the age of 20, for example, or 21, and uh, one might progress and retire maybe at 60, or you might retire at 80, or just carry on like Madiba did right through until the end. But the point really is here, the point is this, one has to be remarkably passionate about one's career, because remember, you will be spending vast amounts of time 
vast amounts of time in your career. And so when you undertake anything in life, and I do meet multitudes of people in my talks. Some of my talks are attended by thousands of people at a sitting, and most people are surviving. I remember asking one person, how are you doing, Joe? And they said, well, Prof, after 40 years, I'm still surviving. To me, that is the incorrect way of living. To me, that's the incorrect way of defining a job. To me, here at the age of 60 now, I'm just so excited. I mean, I feel like a little child uh, tossing a ball on the beach, I suppose, thinking back to Sir Isaac Newton. And, you know, he was just so passionate about what he did. And unless one's passionate about one's career, your career is the wrong one. You've got to be passionate. There's got to be something that, you know, drives you in the morning that you wake up and say, well, this is another day. And I, for example, wake up and say, well, this is another day to study the night sky. This is another day to immerse myself in the grandeurs and mysteries of astronomy. This is another day, for example, for book writing, which is going to be my next topic after this one. But it's very important. In all of this, to be filled with a sense of passion. So to come back to one central question, how do I know that my daughter or my son is choosing the right career? First of all, please remember that money maketh no career. I repeat, money really maketh no career. Of course, it's important to have enough money, to have a family and to support one's children and financially and through university and so on. But money never has ever brought anyone on its own uh, happiness, we must remember this, that what drives a career is passion. You look at some investors today, some of the most amazing investors in, on the globe, and they're just so highly passionate, like Warren Buffett is, about his work, and uh, uh, the rest actually follows. So here is a little thought, David. Would you say that one's passion is part of one's purpose? Yes, and yes, but I'd like to just tease that out a little because it's a very interesting uh, thought and comment. Uh, would you say that passion is part of one's purpose? I believe, first of all, everybody has a purpose. I really believe that everyone listening to this um, uh, looking up with David Block has got some purpose. But the point is, you may not have discovered your purpose yet. Now, you have a purpose, but at the moment you might feel not like not wanting to really get up out of bed in the morning. There's no passion. Then I'll say you haven't yet discovered your real raison d'etre for being on this pale blue dot to quote Carl Sagan. So one has to discover one's purpose. And how do you do that? How did David Block actually discover his purpose? Well, one discovers one's purpose by finding out what ignites you. What is your passion? You know, if your passion, for example, is to unradio, go for it. If your passion is to write books, Go for it. There, you know, then your passion is your purpose. You're passionate about writing books. That's your purpose. You've then discovered your purpose. So I would say use passion as a thermometer. In other words, you know, I look back at my, upon my career and my father took me for the usual sorts of tests, aptitude tests, before I entered the University of the Witwatersrand. And uh, the people who did, conducted the test said to my dad, you know, David really must become an actuary. And that was not my purpose. How do I know that? Because that was not my passion. My passion was not to sit behind a desk and doing actuarial work. Now, of course, I've been privileged to uh, speak publicly to, you know, thousands and more of people, auditors, uh, um, actuaries, and so forth. But you would find that they are extremely passionate, extremely passionate about what they do. And so I would say an answer to this question is this. If you are not passionate about whatever you're doing, then that's not your purpose. For example, you may have a dream to become the next SA Idol. For example, 
And, you know, what passion is driving you? What degree of professionalism is driving you? What degree of excellence is driving you? Now, to take it back to my own calling and purpose, I suppose my purpose on earth is multifold to communicate uh, the awesomeness of God's truths to myriads of people around the globe, to discover the grandeur of cosmic dust, to unmask the universe, to look at the universe with new pairs of eyes. But I'm so passionate about my calling. And I suppose that's the key thread, is that when one's job shadowing, how passionate is your son or your daughter? I just remember that one of our twin boys, as I said, uh, did some job shadowing in the trauma unit at Barra. And so how passionate was, was he? Well, is he? Well, he did one shift. One his starting shift was a 24-hour shift. 24 hours. So, in other words, he went out to Barra at 7 a.m. one morning and came back the next morning at 7 a.m. That is passion. And when he came home and I said to him, Nathaniel, how do you feel about going into theatre? Now, remember, this is only a little guy of 16. And I said, how do you feel about going into theatre? He said, Dad, I watched them cutting open chests. It was awesome. I said, what else did you see? He said, Dad, I saw gunshot wounds. And it was just awesome to help fix the patients and, you know, standing alongside the professor. And I said, well, what else? And he said, there were stab wounds and, you know, things I wouldn't even discuss uh, on the program because they really just... You know, <laughs> you need a good stomach to stomach them. But the point really is, is that here was a guy who came back after 24 hours on duty and he said, Dad, it was awesome. And then, you know, now Nathaniel has discovered his purpose because he is so passionate about it. And that was the case, of course, with me in astronomy, is gazing up at Comet Bennett. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more about comets and so forth. And the day came when I actually gazed up at the eastern skies and saw Comet Bennett with its glorious head and its tails, as I've got a little photograph here in front of me. And that really was the start of it all. And I suppose the passion has increased. Allow me to say that again. The passion has increased. You know, I'm about to depart for Canberra in the, in, in Australia. I'll be there from February the 15th. My birthday is on February the 16th. And on February the 15th, I fly out to Sydney. So I'll be celebrating my birthday on February the 16th in Sydney. But what's so exciting about this forthcoming trip is it's not a job for me. It's a calling. It's a purpose to write another book on astronomy. I've got two books which I've written over here in front of me, one called Star Watch. And I'm going to tell you the story about Star Watch and how to write books which really do sell. And Shrouds of the Night, another one of my books. But the question really is this. Your son, your daughter, your friend, are you driven or are you led? Now, that's a very interesting question. If you are driven to do something, for example, you may have a technical bent, but somehow, somehow, there's no passion behind that. Then, then, in that case, that specific uh, enterprise that you're following might not be your exact calling. Whenever I think of Albert Einstein, I think of passion. Whenever I think of Sir Isaac Newton or Marie Curie or any one of the great scientists, I always think of them so passionate about their laboratories, going in, discovering, uncovering, unmasking. You know, to me, one's salary should just be a bonus. In other words, you should so much enjoy what you are doing that your salary at the end of the month is simply a bonus. Now, many people, or perhaps most people, do it the other way around. They say, well, what will the salary be? And to me, as an academic, I said to myself, what will I enjoy doing the most? Now, if money then does get paid, which is very important, then of course, that's awesome. But the key point that I'm trying to raise is, are you led in life or are you driven? If you're driven, it's stress, stress, stress. And, uh, you know, you see guys of 18 and 19 saying, life is so stressful. 
and it's filled with such a degree of stress. Now, if you're enjoying your career, if you're passionate about your career, then because of the passion, it no longer becomes stressful. So let me give you one or two examples of leading a life which is led rather than driven after we have a little break. But just before our little music break, please do reach us in studio on 0861-555189 or you can tweet us at cliffcentral.com, Instagram cliffcentral, Facebook cliffcentral and WeChat ID cliffcentral. You can also, of course, contact me via my webpage, which is www.davidblock.co.za. That's www.davidblock.co.za. And also, I'd be honored, what a privilege to have you as one of my Twitter followers. You can always follow me at Starry Galaxy Man, whether I'm here or in Canberra or in Sydney soon. At Starry Galaxy Man. But now, before we continue, just a tiny little music break. Wow, you are joining Professor David Block, looking up with David Block. Uh, we're in studio, we're bouncing away with some awesome music. Twitter is the most popular way of reaching us as well as WeChat and um, Twitter is at cliffcentral.com and WeChat cliffcentral. So give us not a buzz necessarily, but a little tweet, for example. I love tweeting. So he has a th- uh, another thought be- before me in the screen. Professor, we may have individual purposes, but could you say that as that humanity, as humanity is concerned, does humanity have a common purpose? Well, I suppose you could see that in the life of Nelson Mandela. You can see that in the life of Mahatma Gandhi and others. And the common purpose is to serve others. It's very rare, but it's one of the most awesome purposes towards humanity. I believe we are born to serve. It's something which, as I say, is exceedingly rare. Most people want to take rather than give. But to me, the sign of any great person, and I've been privileged to meet uh, many uh, great people, some famous, some not famous, but in each case they serve. They're just born to serve. They're born to give. They're born to dream. And, you know, when someone, for example, serves, it can be in the most incredible way. Someone might, for example, bring you a cup of tea in the morning and just bring it with a awesome, passionate smile on their face and it just makes somebody else's day. And, you know, that's one of the great things about being here with Gareth Cliff is he makes my day. And I trust in some small way, I encourage him to make his day great and passionate. But the point really is, is that we're here to encourage uh, one another, not to deflate one another. And so coming back to this um a poignant uh, comment is that uh, humanity, as humanity, I believe, yes, humanity does have a common purpose, and that common purpose really is to serve others, to help others reach their dreams. And in doing so, your life will be filled with excitement, with passion, with awe, with wonder, with enthusiasm, with an awesome sense of purpose, and you will have ignited uh, your candle, as it were. Now, another comment is this. David, what do you say? This is a question. David, what do you say to people who comment that they don't have a passion? How do they find it if they don't know what it is or if they don't know what the, the um, purpose or passion really is? They just say they do not have a passion. Well, if you don't have a... That's an excellent uh, question. And if you don't have... A passion, it's, it's wrongly phrased in the sense that your passion is latent, but you haven't found it yet. In other words, you might be going through life and feeling, not feeling passionate about any of the, you know, endeavors you undertake. That means that your passion has not yet been ignited. So it's like charcoal on a stove. 
You know, it needs a strike of one match and that gets it going. So in my life, there are many, many, many different areas about which I'm totally, I'm not passionate about them. And so that is not my calling. I may not be passionate, for example, about a world of selling food. That's not my calling. It's awesome to be able to sell food in, say, supermarket chains and so forth. But that's not David Block's calling. And people will say to me, but it's just so awesome to be in, for example, the business world. And I say, absolutely. That's your passion. That's your calling. So if one says that one hasn't got passion, that's not the correct phraseology. What me, what you're trying to say to me is that you haven't discovered your passion yet. In other words, nothing excites you in the morning yet to get up and go for it. But once one discovers one's passion, the rest is history. Let me give you one little example. Many, many, many years ago, well, in the 1980s, I took it upon myself to encourage others at the University of Fort Hare. Those were not easy days. Those were days of riots. Those were the days of burning of buildings and so forth. But I remember being in this situation, and it was very difficult because we had buildings and they were going up in smoke and so forth and so forth. And, you know, there were soldiers with machine guns patrolling the campus. And I knew that my purpose was to encourage others. That was my purpose. I, my purpose was not to lecture applied maths. That was my secondary purpose. My main purpose was to encourage others. Students in particular, who are finding it incredibly difficult at the University of Forte to concentrate, um, to even get 200 rand to go to uh, East London. They didn't have it. it. These were exceedingly difficult Days in the apartheid regime uh, and exceedingly difficult for any person who was not white, exceedingly difficult. And so I took it upon myself, together with my wife Liz, to actually uh, go and encourage young leaders of tomorrow. And so that was my purpose in those days, as it is now, is to encourage uh, others. God has lit my candle and it's my duty to then to therefore light other people's candles. As in the Psalms, Psalm 18. And so I went to the University of Forte with the, this, with the absolute calling on my life to encourage others, to motivate others, and then a secondary to lecture to them. And I'm privileged to say, looking back now, that, you know, I mentored a guy who stayed in a shack. Never forget this. This guy just stayed in a shack, and every time the rains would come at Alice, this guy would work out where to put the next set of rocks. I've relayed the story before, but I'm relaying it again on on air live now. And, you know, it was so amazing that he has this guy, and I just realized he has a jewel. He has a God-made jewel, uh, and it's just awesome. But, you know, he didn't have 200 rand, Duncan. He didn't have 200 rand to get back home to East London. He did not have, listen to me, 200 rands. So I had the privilege of um, helping him discover his purpose, of motivating him, of encouraging, of enthusing him. And today he is chairman uh, of one of the world's largest banks. So I think that, you know, that was my purpose in being at Fort Hare in those days, was I had the privilege of mentoring one, as I say, a future chairman of one of the world's largest banks. Uh, one of my students became a vice chancellor. Uh, another of my students, another vice chancellor. So, you know, those were the days, very difficult days, days of no money, days of extreme adversity, days of almost poverty to the students. Uh, they just, but, David Block was help, was there to help ignite their candles. David Block was there to help them reach, to discover their passion. And in discovering their passion, the rest is history. As chairman of the one of the world's largest banks, this guy would often be in Davos, meeting with Bill Gates and others. And I often just jokingly think to myself, 
when I mentored him that he didn't have 200 rands to get to uh, East London. So what I was in those days was I was a catalyst for change. I was a catalyst for encouragement. I was a catalyst for helping people discover their passion. And by helping them to discover their passion, I was helping them to discover their purpose. Let me just give you a straight example on planet Earth. You, for example, may not be passionate about a certain individual. Well, that relationship then is not the one for you. You've got to wait and work until you find that relationship that you find fulfilling and becoming and one of giving dignity and purpose and calling and joie de vivre and just a sense of joy. And uh, that's part of one's God-given purpose. It's just so awesome to discover one's purpose in life. And as I say, here I sit at the age of 60 about to write another book in Australia, and it's great. It's awesome. Can't wait to get off the plane and open my little laptop and start bouncing away on the keys, uh, Duncan. I just want to bounce away on those laptop keys. I want to write. Why? Because it's fun. Not because I'm getting paid for it, because it's fun. And to me, to communicate and communicate truths through book writing is fun. And now to my second, uh, the first sector was, how do I know I've chosen the correct career? Now, the second one is, how do, we have multitudes of, of listeners, uh, followers on Cliff Central. How does one actually go about writing books? This is something I, which is uh, very personal because I'll be relaying some very um, uh, discreet little secrets. Uh, do reach us on Twitter if you want to at cliffcentral.com or WeChat ID at cliffcentral. But the point really is, is why write books and how do I write books and how do I get them published? Well, the first question you have to ask yourself is this. Do I have a story to tell? Do I have a story to tell? If you don't have a story to tell, don't write the book. Simple as that. Do you have a story to tell? Think of any great author you've read in the last week or two. Think of any great person such as Shakespeare whose literature just changed the world. Well, they all had their stories to tell. In any great poet, they all had their thoughts to convey or their stories to tell in one way or another. For example, one of America's great literary minds, Walt Whitman, said, I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. Isn't that beautiful? I believe that a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. What Walt Whitman is saying here, that he believes that people who study leaves of grass, tiny little things, microcosmic, is no less than being an astronomer at a big telescope. Something so simple, so humble, you know, a gardener working on a, you know, a blade of grass, one leaf, he says, one leaf of grass is no less than studying the journey work, the awesome journey work, of the stars. And so, you know, Walt Whitman's um, passion was to write, and he wrote the most incredible uh, books. And that's my theme now, is how does one actually write a book, and why do you write a book? Well, as I say, the central theme for me is, is there a story? Is there a storyline? I'm not talking now of books on business, for example, but even there, is there a storyline? If there's a storyline, if you have some story to tell, then you are, you are pregnant. What do I mean by you are pregnant? You are impregnated, you are pregnant with the idea of the conception of book writing. And that's an awesome uh, state to be is to be pregnant with a new idea of writing a new book. And that's where I'm at right now is I've been invited to be a guest author at the university, uh, uh, the ANU, one of Australia's greatest universities, the Australian National University in this capital city of Canberra. And I've been invited there for five weeks, and we're going to be writing books. So, you know, that is just awesome. But the point really is, before you start uh, writing a book, you must ask yourself the question, why are you writing the book? So you're writing the book because you have a story to tell. Then you have to ask yourself this question, Who is my audience? In other words, is it going to be K 
kids at primary school? Is it going to be kids at school? Is it going to be kids at high school? Is it going to be young teenagers? Is it going to be adolescents? Is it going to be adults? Is it going to be for retired folk? And so forth. You must decide on your audience because that dictates the entire way in which you write your story. You know, if I'm trying to convey my story to someone who's aged 30, I'll use totally different words and thoughts and examples and phraseologies to, for example, if I'm trying to communicate to someone who's 16. So you've got to tell your story in the lingo of the moment. And I think that's why so many songs have caught on today, is because it's in the lingo of the moment. And so, you know, my central theme in writing the next book is to convey it to an audience, let's say from mid-high school to, you know, 60, 70 and yet more. So a very broad audience, but I want to address some of the key questions which troubles humanity. Such as questions of science versus faith, such as questions of, you know, Galileo, such as questions of where does God fit into the grand scheme of things? Is there God? Is there a purpose? Do I actually have a divine calling on this planet Earth? Uh, questions like this, for example, I get asked around the globe, and so I want to sit down and tell a story, but I have to tell it to my, I have to address my audience. So it's no point writing a book that won't sell. Why won't the book sell? Because you're addressing the wrong audience. If you want to write a book on golfing, then address it towards golfers. If you want to write a book on music, address it in the language of musicians. If you want to write a book on pure mathematics, address it in the language which is appropriate to that discipline. And so in book writing, point number one is this. You've got to have a story. Just think, for example, let's forget the literary giants abroad. Let's just think of um, literary giants in Africa. Let's think of people uh, whom we've admired so much and the books they've written. Each one has had a grand story to tell. Maybe a very humble story, but it's a story. And, you know, the broadcast today, the, the streaming, the, the thoughts on the, at the University of Fort Hare, you know, write a book only if you have a story. One thing which has always struck me with the program Idols is this, that many people believe they're idols, but they're not. They cannot sing. And you have to watch the judges' faces and you just realize these guys just cannot sing. They're not cut out at all to be idols. So the point is, you've got to have a story. You've got to be talented in that area. But as I say, myself, how do I know that I'm called to write another book? Because I can't wait to arrive in Sydney and start bouncing away. And you could just hear from the terminology I'm trying, that I'm using, that I'm trying to convey something that it's going to be fun. It's not going to be a drag. It's going to be sitting down, writing. It's going to be in Australia. It's going to be interviewed. I'll be interviewed by Gareth on his show. And I'm so excited about that each week that I'm in Australia. It's going to be bouncy stuff. It's going to be stuff that's fun. So have a story to tell for your book. Have an audience to address. And then, perhaps the hardest part, is to sit down and write it. Now, you have to be in the right environment. You have to be passionate about that. You can't write a book, for example, in Evbob. Well, I wouldn't write a book in Evbob or Dove's a funeral parlor. You've got to write it in the right environment, an environment that inspires you. You might like black uh, paint. Well, then write it in, in a room painted black. You might like blue. You might find that very inspiring. Well, paint your wall blue. Uh, I'm moving into an office at the university where it's green because my thoughts must green. They must <laughs> regenerate like grass. They must fertilize. They must give forth and birth to new dreams and visions. So my wall's painted green. But whatever your color is, be in that color scheme or which really focuses your mind to write the book. Little thought here. David, can anyone deny you your purpose? Well, that's a very interesting thought, comment, and question. That's a very brilliant one. And 
I'm going to pause because it's just so, it cuts to the very core of my being, because while nobody can deny you your purpose, you can find so much degrees of discouragement that you stop fulfilling your purpose. And that is the important. So nobody can deny you your purpose. But in answer to that question, which is really excellent, uh, I would say this. You have a purpose. You are born for something. But the point really here is, is that if you continually feed on others who feed you words of discouragement, you may stop following your dream. And that to me is so serious. That to me is so tragic, is that there are multitudes of people today who are so discouraged. They're on antidepressants. They are so discouraged. They cannot see the wood for the trees. And, you know, somebody reminded me yesterday um, that, you know, the sun will set tonight, of course, but it will rise tomorrow. And it sounds trite, but it's true. The sun will set today, but it will rise tomorrow. In other words, there's a setting today, a denial perhaps of purpose, but there's a rising of purpose tomorrow. And so one's really got to understand that, you know, there are hordes of motivational speakers out there, hordes of them, who try and help you discover your purpose. But at the end of the day, a lot of that's just hype. I find a lot of motivational speaking just hype. There are very few speakers who really, you know, tickle my neurophysiological cells, as it were, and speak forth words of very profound meaning, like Einstein or Newton would. But the point really is, as an aside, that was simply an aside, is that can one can somebody deny you your purpose? Well, people can make it exceedingly hard for you to reach for your dream. But if you think back of Robin Island, what does it tell us? Those people were all in jail for a purpose, and not even the apartheid regime, not even the wickedness of all those tanks and bullets and the 76 riots and the killing of children, nothing could stop those dreams. Nothing could stop the purposes in those cells. Nothing on earth could stop them. And so one's got to be very careful that if your purpose is sufficiently close to your heart, then I would say that even if one is in jail, as they were in Robben Island, nothing could deny them their purpose. But of course, we are not all Nelson Mandela's and his friends in terms of, you know, to be able to endure some 27 years, you know, on concrete floors. We're not all cut out for that at all. But what I'm saying is, if your purpose is sufficiently close to your heart, then I believe it might take a year. At on Robben Island, the story goes over 20 years. But... They achieve their goal, their purpose, their dream. So the tragedy, why I'm hesitating and halting is because I feel such empathy for people whose dreams have been thwarted. I really do. I meet so many students and they say, Prof, I have no purpose in life. Well, their purpose has been cut off, if you like, in a sense. But it's just temporarily. Once they meet someone who encourages them and infuses them, and who touches them, and who touches them in their minds, who touches them, who ignites their mindsets, then that's another story to tell in one's book. But then coming back to the book of the world of books, you've got to have a story, you've got to have the right audience, you've got to have that sitting power. But then comes the hardest part, I suppose, and that is, where do I publish my book? Now, it's actually very, very interesting because I wrote my first book called Star Watch in Krugersdorp. So as you heard at the beginning of Looking Up with David Block, I was born in Krugersdorp. And Krugersdorp is not, doesn't have any famous publishing houses. You're not going to write a bestseller and have it sold out in Krugersdorp. Uh, it's not possible. Uh, there are no printing presses in Krugersdorp, which would reach the marketing places of New York, Chicago, and so forth. So I realized that here I am, 
uh, writing a book. It was given the name Star Watch, but I didn't have a publisher. Why do I need a publisher? Well, how will I market my book? I can't fly to Chicago and to New York and to Los Angeles and to Japan all at the same time. I need people or experts in that area to do it for me. So in other words, I need a very specific publisher who's got reps on the road and all over the world and who would be willing to publish this book. Then I know that I've got the right publisher. So what I did, Duncan, way back in the 1980s when I wrote my first book was I remember picking up the phone, booking my air ticket to London, and I had my manuscript under my hands. And people said to me, but Prof, where were you going? And I was saying, well, I was going to meet my publisher. They said, but what do you mean you were going to meet your publisher? How do you know that, uh, you know, these people will take you on? And that's where the passion comes in. That's where the God-given faith comes in. That's where prayers, people prayed for me. They prayed that I would be led to the right publisher. They actually held me up in prayer. And then I flew to London and uh, I met with one publishing house, one of the largest in the world, called Lion Publishing, L-I-O-N, Lion Publishing. And uh, I remember getting up at 4 a.m. Duncan and it was snowing outside. And uh, I said, today I am meeting my publisher of my new book. And they said, well, Prof, you know, hundreds of books reach our desks every week. We only publish one or two new ones a month. And I said to myself, no, 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 no. I know that I know that this will be my publisher. Lion Publishing will be the publisher of my book, Star Watch. And if you were to Google, I suppose, Star Watch and David Block, it should still come up, I suppose, with some traces that I actually did write Star Watch. But the point was, I met with Lion Publishing, and they were so enthusiastic about my idea and my stories. They loved the stories that I was going to share, stories of the universe, stories of the birth of stars, stories of the the, uh, death of stars. And I remember walking into the chairman's office, the chairperson's office, and she said to me, "Uh, Dr. Block, please sit down. And I said, sure. And she said, why are you here? And I was hugging my manuscript, and I said, well, this is story number one. This is story number two. Let's, and I'm so passionate as I unfolded the dream of Star Watch. And there I was holding papers, a file that uh, was written in Krugersdorp. But I knew that I had to make the move. I had to fly to London. I had to leave Krugersdorp and I had to act by faith. And uh, that's very interesting because the next comment is how much of a factor does faith uh, help in reaching your dream. And yes, absolutely so. You can't go in fear or in trepidation to these publishing houses. I believe that a key element in my entire life has been uh, leaps of faith. Not always giant leaps of faith, but God-given leaps of faith. They might be very small leaps of faith, but they leaps of faith. I had to pick up the phone and reach the publishers in London and say, may I come and see you? That's a huge step of faith. Here I am, a guy in Krugersdorp, not very experienced at that, still very young, and I've got this dream to write a book, to reach the world with some of the beautiful, some of the world's most beautiful pictures and so on from around the world and some of the world's greatest telescopes and so forth. So that was a leap of faith in going to London, but I had to do it. But the point is I believed in my product. I really believed that if I met and was passionate enough about, in quotes, promoting or selling or marketing my story, that passion would be ignited in other people's mindsets. And it was. You know, I don't think I was at Lion Publishing House for more than about 15 minutes before the chairperson said, may I call in my senior staff? I said, but of course you may call in your senior staff. Of course. You see, we were all on the right track of passion and purpose. Passion and purpose. And she called in her senior staff and we sat around and uh, we discussed stories again. Stories of the birth of stars. Stories of the death of stars. Stories of how stars are born. Stories of how stars die. Stories of from the nearest planet to the furthest galaxy. An exploration of the universe 
and its meaning. That's the subtitle in my book, Star Watch, and its meaning. And so I had very distinct stories to tell. And after about 40 minutes, I don't want to underplay the time or overestimate the time or underestimate it, but after about 40 minutes, not much more, she said to me, Dr. Block, could you leave this manuscript with us? And we will contact you within a day or two. And it turned out that within a day or two, Star Lion Publishing, one of the world's largest publishers of coffee table books, agreed to publish my first book, Star Watch. So that's the, that's really wrapping up, if you like, a story of how one addresses one's market and how one actually get, goes about writing a book. Now, the interesting thing is this. Star Watch was tr- published in English, of course, and then it was translated. It was translated into Swedish, and it sold out in the Swedish language. It was translated into German, Sternenwelt, and it sold out in the German language, and then it sold out in the English language. So the copies that I have now are just second-hand ones that come on sale from time to time. But I think that I've shared some of the history of book writing, my history of book writing with you today, and it is very important that when you're taking on a new business venture, for example, leaps of faith are involved, and to come back to that comment, how much of a factor does believing and having some kind of faith play in reaching your dream, I'd say it's very important to say it again to yourself, what motivates you, what excites you in the morning. Let's be just very basic. You open your eyes in the morning, what excites you? Well, if book writing excites you, you're a born author. If book writing doesn't excite you, you're not a born author. It's just as easy, and it might sound trite, but it's as easy as as simple as that. You know, I meet meet people who just can't wait to type the next x-ray report for a radiologist. They are born typists. It's an incredible calling, something I really cannot do. When I write books, I punch at the keyboard and bounce around one finger at a time. That's true. That's true. And these typists go for it at an incredible lightning relativistic speed. So, again, the point really is, is, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you're passionate about the writing of books, tell the right story, reach the right audience, take leaps of faith to other countries like I'm doing in a week or two, take leaps of faith. And go and market your ideas to the the leaders in your worlds of expertise, the Davoses, if you like, and the rest will be history. I believe in South Africa. I believe that each one of us has a purpose here in South Africa. I believe that just in you listening to this uh, show today, live or via podcast, you have a purpose. The question is, if you're not passionate, you haven't discovered your purpose, right, move the cutting edge as we are encouraged to do by listening to the music of Africa. This is Professor David Block signing out. See you next week.